Well, tonight we're going to begin studying the Ten Commandments one at a time. Over the past uh, couple of weeks, by way of introduction, we've sought to understand the importance and the relevance of the Ten Commandments to our lives as Christians today, which some uh, Christians would say uh, we have no business studying the Ten Commandments, seeking to apply the Ten Commandments. They were for the nation of Israel. They were the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. But we have seen that these are very relevant for us today. And at the same time, we looked at the historical context in which the Ten Commandments were originally given to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, which is our picture here, a pretty graphic uh, image of, of where this whole scene went down. And we've been learning why it is so critical for us to know the Ten Commandments and not just know them, but to obey them, namely because of who gave them to us and what he's done for us. And last week we focused in on the fact that God is grave He's serious, he's sobering, he's to be revered and and feared, but he's also good and gracious. And his profound graveness and graciousness should stir in us a profound gratefulness that motivates us to obey and serve him with our lives. I want us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 as we begin tonight. And uh, as you know, Deuteronomy means second law, Deutero, second law. And here was Moses reiterating the law uh, that was originally given back at Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus chapter 20. And now uh, all the the generation that was alive at the time that rebelled against the Lord uh, and, and were not willing to trust the Lord to go into the promised land, they all died off in the wilderness. And now their kids and their grandkids were standing with Moses on the east side of the Jordan River preparing to go into the promised land. And so Moses wanted to reiterate the law to them, uh, to uh, remind them of the law and explain it to them, to this new generation, and encourage them once again and exhort them once again uh, to obey it, to keep uh, the commandments. And this is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Again, he's, Moses is urging Israel, this new generation of Israelites, to obey God's law. Indeed, he says, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard of like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? To you, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Remember that phrase in light of what we're going to be studying later tonight, the first commandment. There is no other besides him. Out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved Your fathers, therefore, he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know, therefore, today and take it to your heart 
that the Lord, he is God in heaven above, above and on earth below. There is no other. So in light of that, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that, I may go, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Very reminiscent of what we've been seeing in, in Exodus, um, and when God originally uh, introduced his law to the people through, through Moses. Now, ultimately, uh, keeping the Ten Commandments is about loving God because he, what? First loved us. That, that's the whole point. It, it's all in response to how much God has loved us, that he delivered us, he redeemed us from Egypt, if you will, from our life of sin. And, and so we're simply desiring to love God because he first loved us. You're there in Deuteronomy 4. Just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with the Shema, which means here. That's the Hebrew word for here, Shema. And it's, uh, this is what they call the Shema, verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the Shema. That's the, 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 the uh, prayer that uh, every uh, devout Hebrew or Jewish person prays on, on a daily basis. And he says, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the Israelites, um, or I should say just um, historically and even today, Orthodox Jews take this passage literally, and that's why they tie Bible verses uh, around their foreheads. They have these little box called phylacteries, and they, they, and they fill them with scripture, and they put them on their head, and they strap it around their head, like kind of a headband, and they also have them on their arm. They strap it around their arms, uh, and they also, if you've ever been into a Jewish home, or if you travel to Israel, uh, and you've walked into the hotel room, there's a little... Uh, a little um, uh, engraving on the doorpost uh, that, that, that has this Shema on it uh, because it says, put it on the front of your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So they took this literally. Well, what God or what, what Moses was actually saying was, hey, they, these things just need to permeate every facet of your life. That was his point. Um, not this external legalistic, let's just walk around with Bible verses strapped to our heads. Uh, let's, let's live the Bible. It should be part of your mind. It should be part of your hands, your feet, everything you do, your entire life. Every time you come and go in your home, you should be thinking about God and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then later on in that chapter, notice what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? In other words, your kid says, hey, hey, daddy. Hey, mommy, what's up with the Ten Commandments? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. 
Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he has sworn to our forefathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. The point is this, that God loves us and he gave us the Ten Commandments for our own good. And by keeping them, things would go well for us and we would live long on the earth. That's the, you children that are here, might, that might ring a bell because uh, your parents probably taught you Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, or one, really 1, 1 through 3, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, honor your father and mother and it will go well with you and you will live long on the earth. That's the first commandment with a promise and it's based on, on the, these Old Testament commands. The point is that Israel's survival depended on whether or not they obeyed God's commands. Their very life was at stake. In fact, we read this last week, Deuteronomy 32, 47. He simply said of the law, Moses said, it is your life. This is your life. And we need to understand that our, our very survival, our lives literally are at stake when it comes to whether or not we obey the Ten Commandments. And we talked last week about the analogy of parents, right? We love our children. As parents, we want what's best for them, and that's why we give them rules to protect them from danger, to help them uh, stay out of trouble, keep them from getting hurt, to ensure that they prosper in life. And so the rules that we give them are not designed to restrict their fun or, or their freedom, to, but to make sure that their life is as safe and fun and free as possible, that they don't end up in jail. And in a similar way, God is a loving parent who's given us rules to live by, to make sure our lives remain safe and fun and free. And so the Ten Commandments are like ten protecting friends, ten watchmen to guide us and to guard us as we journey through life. Uh, instead of going, oh man, these, these, you know, these commands are burdensome, they're a pain in the neck, why did he give them to us? No, these are good things. We should have a positive perspective. And these things are, are, are given to us to guide us and to guard us so that we have the best life possible. And they're intended to keep us on the right path and, and keep us from wandering off into dangerous places where we're going to get hurt and keep us, they keep us from living in bondage to sin. Listen, God freed us from sin and he wants us to stay free from sin. And so once we get saved, the law goes from, from being that mirror that, that shows us our sin and our need of a Savior, and, and it turns into a map that shows us how to avoid the pitfalls of, of, of life and sin. And so like, like all laws, the, the purpose of God's laws is to govern us, to guide us, and to guard us. It's, it, they're, they're for our own protection, and they're for the protection of others. And listen carefully, they're even for God's protection. There are certain things about God that he wanted to protect. 
I think it's interesting that Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, talk about the Ten Commandments and, and the way it's worded is uh, in the Hebrew, it simply says the ten words. Not the Ten Commandments, but simply the ten words. And so I thought it would be helpful maybe to, to, to summarize the Ten Commandments in a word. What is the word? What is the, the one word that summarizes each one of the Ten Commandments? And, and what are they intended to guard? And so the first commandment is guarding God's glory. And you could say the word is love. The second commandment is guarding God's nature. Um, and, and the word you could put there maybe is worship. The third commandment is guarding God's name. Uh, talking about reverence would be a, a good word for that. Uh, number four, fourth commandment would be guarding God's what? What's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So guarding God's day and the word would be rest. Uh, the fifth commandment would be guarding parental authority. The word there could be honor. The sixth commandment is guarding the sanctity of life. Thou shalt not murder, uh, and so the word there is life. Uh, the seventh commandment is guarding marriage. Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so the word there would be faithfulness. Uh, the eighth commandment, guarding others' property, thou shalt not steal, so the word there is security. Uh, the, the, the ninth commandment is guarding others' reputation, thou shalt not lie. The word would be, the operative word would be truth. And then finally, the tenth commandment is guarding our hearts. Thou shalt not, what? Covet anything. So I think the operative word there would be contentment. What's the opposite of coveting? Being content with what you have. And so in summary here, the ten commandments are ten basic rules for guarding our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. And, and that's really how the, the Ten Commandments are commonly divided. They're divided into two sections. And you've got the commands that are, were given to regulate our relationship with God. They're, they're vertical in nature. And you've got the commands that were intended to regulate our relationship to others. And it's more the horizontal plane. And, and so really a, a simple way to, to, to memorize uh, the Ten Commandments. And, and if I were to come out and, and stick this microphone in front of you and say, hey, I want you to tell me the Ten Commandments in, in their proper order, how many think you couldn't do it? How many think you couldn't do it? Just raise your hand and say, I couldn't do that, Ken. Please don't come out here and make me do that. I couldn't do it. Okay, so the majority of you are raising your hand saying, I, I couldn't do it. Do you think that it's worth your time to memorize the Ten Commandments? In their proper order. Anybody think that's worth your time? I mean, if they're as important as we're saying they are, that they're given to us by God to guide us and to guard us, don't you think you should know what they are? Uh, so let me give you a very simple way to memorize the Ten Commandments that I think you'll never forget. So all you need to think of is how many, ten, how many commandments are there? Okay, that's easy so far, right? Okay, so then you have to divide them into two sections. You've got the first four, uh, 
that talk about your relationship with God, and you've got the last six that talk about your relationship with other people. So just think of four and think of six. And so memorize the first four, get those locked down in your mind, and then memorize the, 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 the second half, the six. Okay? So what are the, what are the commands regarding your relationship with God? Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me or besides me. We're going to talk about that this, this, this evening. Second command, thou shalt have no, or thou shalt not make what? Idols, graven images. Third commandment is what? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord's, don't take the Lord's name in vain, right? And then the fourth one is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So there you go. You got the first four commandments memorized, okay? No other gods, no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath and keep it, keep it holy. So those are the four commands that relate to your relationship with God. And then, then the six have to do with your relationship with, with other human beings. And, and the first human beings that you need to learn to relate to from the moment you're born, right, starting off from the beginning is who? Honor your mom and dad. Honor your father and mother. First, the first command you need to obey as a, as a, as a human being as you are born and, and grow up. And then think about it from, not that there's a scale of sin, like this sin is worse than this sin, but I think uh, murder, okay, you, you can, you can, uh, you'll end up in jail for murder. I'm not sure you get in jail for coveting. Okay, so the point is they go, let's think about them in the descending order, okay? So the very first thing, okay, you're on your father and mother, and then the next thing is what? Thou shalt not murder. What would be second only to murder? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thirdly, thou shalt not steal. And then what's four? Thou shalt not, or number five now, thou shalt not lie. And then finally, thou shalt what? Not covet. So you've got honor your parents, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. So you see kind of the logical order? Uh, it just, just makes a whole lot of sense the way they're just, they're just laid out for us. Uh, easy to memorize. And so hopefully you can just kind of work on that uh, you know, over the next few weeks and just think about the, the commands. If you're waking up and guys, you're, you're, you're shaving and you're not, you know, using your brain, you're in your nothing box, you know, as they say, uh, you're shaving away. Hey, just kind of run through those things. Ladies, you're putting on your makeup, you know, and, and you don't have, you don't own a nothing box. Your, your mind's going all over the place, right? But, but try to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to memorize the Ten Commandments while I'm putting on my makeup, or while I'm, while I'm driving my kid to school. In fact, I did this with, with Jacob last week. I said, hey, Jacob, do you know the Ten Commandments? He says, well, I think so, sort of. I said, well, let's, let's, let's get them down right now. And so we learned them on the way to school, 20-minute drive, and, and, and he had them down. Uh, just thinking about them in four and six, and then logically the four things about God, and then the six things about human beings. So really a simple way to say, say it is this. The first four commandments talk about our love for God, and the last six commandments talk about our love for others. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus was asked which was the greatest of the Ten Commandments, what did he do? He didn't really just pick one. What did he do? 
he summarized them and simplified them into just two commandments. He, he said you can boil the, all the Ten Commandments down to two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Lord willing, that will be our concluding text. Uh, we'll kind of do an appendix, if you will, or a conclusion to this series, and we're going to go to the New Testament and see how Jesus um, just boiled it all, all down to loving God and loving others. And that's just the simplest way to understand, you know, if, you, if, if 10's too big of a number for you, okay, you're like, oh, there's all these laws, I got, there's 10 laws, I got to remember. Just remember too, love God and love others. And if you love God, you're not going to break the first four commandments, and if you love others, you're not going to break the second six commandments. And what Jesus was doing in Matthew 22, for example, he was just simply repeating the Shema. Hear, O Israel, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was what a devout Jew recited every morning, every evening. And so this really, I think, is the essence of the first commandment, which we're going to look at tonight, namely that we need to love God exclusively and supremely. We need to love him alone with with all of our hearts more than anyone or anything else in our lives. And so turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I would submit to you that this first commandment is the most important commandment out of which all the others flow. It serves as the foundation for the rest of the nine commandments, but particularly for the next three that, as we've just learned, deal directly with God. And so before we go any further, the first thing that God wants us to know is that he is the one and only true God. And consequently, that means he has the right to demand our exclusive devotion and dependence. I mean, this is the, the, the fundamental truth of life, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. The first question of the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to what? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So there is one God who alone deserves all glory, all honor, all praise, all thanks. And so while God is very gracious and very generous when it comes to His glory, He doesn't like to share. So He's a very generous and gracious God, but when it comes to His glory, He does not like to share. In fact, He refuses to share worship with anyone or anything else. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And so God desires not just to be the supreme object of our worship, but the sole object of our worship. That's the essence of no other gods, period. Why? Well, why does he... Why does he not just want to be the supreme object of our worship, but the sole object of our worship, because he alone is worthy of worship. 
He alone is worthy of worship. I love that song we sing, You're Worthy of of My Praise. It goes like this. I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. I will worship you with all my heart. I will praise you with all my strength. I will seek you all of my days, and I will follow follow all of your ways. I will bow down and hail you as king. I will serve you. I will give you everything. And again, this is based on who he is and what he has done. He has exclusive rights to every one of our lives. I mean, if you're sitting there tonight and you're still wondering, you know, what gives God the right to make this claim on my life? Can I remind you of the context? Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, is the essence there, you shall have no other gods before me. God was directly addressing here the Israelites, we know that, but the emphatic nature of this phrase applies to us as well. You shall have no other gods before me. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it this way. He said, because the commandment concerns everyone, God would have each one take it as spoken to him by name. In other words, we need to, we need to personalize this, this commandment. Put, put your name in this verse in the place of you. Ken, have no other gods before me. Julie, have no other gods before me. Rusty, have no other gods before me. Fred, have no other gods before me. So he says, you shall have no other gods. Now again, before we can properly apply this command to us as Christians, we need to first understand what it meant for the Israelites. And when they heard this, you shall have no other gods before me, well, they were in a polytheistic uh, world. That, that was the, the, the norm throughout the ancient Middle East. Everyone, everyone, absolutely everyone worshipped multiple gods. And, and, and the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, which was one of the most polytheist, polytheistic cultures in the history of the world. They, they worshipped all sorts of gods, gods of the field and gods of the rivers and god of light and god of darkness and the sun, god of the moon, god of storms and of cows and, and crops and locusts. Hold that thought because the plagues were all about that. Basically showing up all these gods, shutting down all these gods. And according to Ezekiel chapter 20, the Israelites had grown accustomed to worshiping these gods as well. Listen to what uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 says, and this may, this may come as a, as a shock to you, but Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 6 God says, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing from milk with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
So apparently, what had they done when they were in Egypt? They had adopted the polytheistic ways and mindsets of of the, the nation of Egypt. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, and whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness." So the first thing that God demanded from his people, even before they left Egypt, was that they forsake all the other gods and worship him and him alone. And it makes sense that they did that after what he had done to the Egyptian gods. I mean, each one of the ten plagues was a direct attack on one of the gods of Egypt. And in essence, what God was saying is, look, look what I did to them. I, I beat them on their home turf. They had home field advantage, and I still whooped up on them. They didn't have a chance against me, and neither will the gods of the Canaanites when you get there. And Israel was about to go, from the, uh, go, go, as they say, from the frying pan into the fire because the nations that were living in the land of Canaan were also notorious for worshiping all sorts of gods and goddesses galore. And so consequently, God wanted to protect them from falling right back into the same sin that they had committed in Egypt, just just assimilating to the ways of the Egyptians. And and, and he didn't want them just to assimilate to the ways of the Canaanites, which unfortunately they did, right? And so the first commandment he gave to them established himself as the sole God of the universe, who alone is worthy to be worshipped and served and Again, sadly, this would be the one command that the Israelites constantly disobeyed. They were constantly going after other gods and embracing the gods of the nations. I mean, the greatest, the greatest recurring problem with the nation of Israel was that they worshiped God along with the gods of the other nations. You see, they, they worshiped God, but they also worshiped the gods of the other nations. And then whenever they did, obviously we, we know it led into chaos and judgment and eventually resulted in them being exiled, ripped out of the promised land uh, and, 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 and sent to Assyria and, and, and Babylon. And so all that to say, I think we need to understand that this first commandment was unprecedented because no other nation in the ancient world prohibited the worship of other gods. Monotheism, or worshiping one god, was to be the primary thing that set Israel apart from all the other nations of the world, who at that time openly acknowledged the legitimacy of many gods. I mean, the one thing that was going to make Israel set apart stick out like a sore thumb, if you will, to be his witness nation was that they were the only people on the planet who believed there's only one God. That sets you apart when you're sitting next to your buddy on your lunch break and he's talking about all the different gods and you're like, what are you talking about? There's only one God. And they look at you and go, you're a freak. What are you talking about? There's only one God. I've never heard that before. Well, let me tell you about it. And so while the the nations 
openly acknowledged the, the legitimacy of many gods. God, however, refused to acknowledge the existence of any other gods. The fact that he, he mentioned other gods doesn't mean he thought they really existed. The, the fact that he says, hey, you shall have no other gods besides me, uh, I think it's better to, to, to view them as so-called gods. And, and in the same spirit of, of Paul, Paul said it so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if they, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom, all, whom are all things, and we exist through him. Remember the showdown between God and, and, and uh, Baal? Um, what mountain was that again? Mount Carmel, thank you. One of my favorite places to visit in Israel is Mount Carmel. It's so vivid, this showdown between, between uh, Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal. And it was really God versus Baal. In this ring is, you know, weighing in at whatever is Baal. And in this ring is the contender is, is God. And, and so this whole thing was to, to prove what? The bill didn't exist. You guys think that there's this God of Baal and you, and so you got 400 prophets jumping up and down and cutting themselves and doing all sorts of incantations to, to call down fire and water and all this kind of stuff and it ain't happening. And Elijah's like, hey, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. He's just mocking him. The point is he doesn't exist. Jeremiah 10, this is, this is really cool. Jeremiah 10 Verse 3, listen to what the idols of the nations were described as. This is, this is Jeremiah 10, just verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, this is God speaking, do not learn the way of the nations and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the peoples are delusion. Because it is, a, it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. I mean, these people are delusional. They're, they're showing up with a mannequin and sitting, you know, sitting next to the mannequin saying, hey, here's my dad, or here's my mom. Or, and you're like, what are you talking about? It's a mannequin. It's, it's not real. And there, you, you think that if I showed up and had this mannequin say, hey, I want to introduce you to my, my new friend. You'd be like, you, dude, you're delusional. That's what he's saying. These people are delusional that they would cut a tree down and fashion it into this idol and then worship it. When they have to hold it up themselves so it doesn't fall over. And then this is what he says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. You ever seen a scarecrow in the, in the garden? I mean, it, it, it looks real to the crows, to the birds, but the point is it's not real. It's a scarecrow. And that's what he's saying. These idols are like scarecrows in the cucumber field. They can't speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. And then he says this, there is none like you, O Lord, for you are great, and great is your name and might, 
Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due, for among all the wise men of the nations and all their kings, there is none like you, but they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood, beaten silver, is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith, violet violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. In other words, these are man-made idols, but the Lord is the true God. God. He is the living God, the everlasting King, and at his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. This is part of what he's getting at when he says there are no other gods. And then he says, what? Thou shalt have no other gods. What's the next phrase? Before me. And that word there is I think that translation is misleading. He's not talking about you shouldn't have any gods in front of me or ahead of me or above me or more important than me for that would enable us to to have many gods in our lives. Hey, you can have other gods as long as they're not in front of me or ahead of me or more important than me. No, the, the, the Hebrew word literally means that you shall have no other gods before my face, in my sight, in my presence. In other words, I better not see you worshiping any other gods besides me. Get them out of my face. I don't want to see them. I'm not interested in being one of many gods in your life or even being your top god. I expect to be your only god. Ladies, you can relate. If you're a normal wife or desire to be a normal wife someday, Uh, You wouldn't tolerate a husband who had many wives, even if you were his favorite one. You know, we watch these reality TV shows of uh, the the multiple, the polygamists, and you're like, that is just wrong, and that is just weird. Um, How how can these ladies all sit there and, and act like they're okay with this? Because I guarantee you they're not. They're delusional. They've been deceived in thinking that, that this is right. This is, they need to learn to, to live in, in this situation. Listen, you as a wife have been designed by God to want to have a man all to yourself. And if you don't, you'd have every right to be jealous. And God is a jealous God. Notice verse 5 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord God, am a what? Jealous God. Listen, God cannot and will not tolerate any rivals. You guys remember the first uh, the account of the ark uh, being uh, captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5? And they brought it into the temple of Dagon, their God. And that was their way of saying, our God's bigger than your God. And, and he's gonna, we're going to bring our ark in there. And he's going to, you know, your ark in there. And we're gonna, he's going to bow. You know, your God's going to bow to Dagon. Well, so they put it in there. And they w- woke up the next morning. And, and what happened? Dagon had fallen flat on his face. Did a face plant. And they're like, okay, that's kind of weird. Ah, maybe it's just a coincidence. You know, so they prop Dagon back up again. Next morning they wake up, and now Dagon not only did a face plant, his head fell off and his arms fell off. <laughs> it's just funny. It's like God's just like in the middle of the night going, Psh! and they're fine. And then finally, like, hey, this is kind of creepy. We need to get rid of this thing. 
And so they sent it to another city, and, and the people were like, whoa, 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 time out. We've heard about this thing. We don't want anything to do with this ark. And they started breaking out with all sorts of stuff, and they sent it to another city, and they're like, whoa, time out. We don't want this in our city. And they finally said, let's get rid of this thing. Let's send it back to Jerusalem. This thing's crazy. We don't want this thing anymore. And I would submit to you that if there was a physical presence of God today, which there is not, but if there was... I think the same thing would happen if you took that into a Buddhist or Hindu temple that tomorrow morning, Buddha or Vishnu or Ganesh, the elephant god in India, would be flat on their faces, trunk broken off, you know, big belly cut in half, Buddha, you know, I don't know what happened, but the point is, okay, if there were statues of Allah and Muhammad, the same thing would happen to them too. Now, by now, I'm sure that um, you're sitting there feeling pretty smug, thinking, hey, you know what? I got this commandment down. What's the next one? Why? Because you believe that there's only one true God. If I went around and said, hey, do you you think there's only one true God? You said, absolutely not. There's no other gods but God. There's only one true God. I know that none of you have a shrine in your closet that you secretly bow down to before you go to bed tonight. You're not going to do that. You don't don't have a collection of idols sitting on your mantle that you pray to every morning when you wake up. You're not burning incense to your ancestors. You you don't put a plate of food out in your backyard to to appease the god of the fire ants, although that might be a good idea. Um, (laughs) None of us are doing these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have kept the first commandment. Because for those of us who live in modern Western culture, other gods come in many different shapes and sizes, don't they? Let me suggest to you some of the gods of this age. Money, houses, cars, careers, power, Prestige, food, sex, sports, clothes, health, exercise, entertainment, technological gadgets, vacations, children, boyfriends, girlfriends, self, you fill in the blank. Now, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with any of these things that I just mentioned. It's not wrong to live in a nice house or to drive a new car or wear fashionable clothes or enjoy physical intimacy with your spouse or or go out to eat at a fancy restaurant, enjoy a nice meal, build build up your business, seek to boost your career, play around to golf, watch the Super Bowl, have a Super Bowl party, go see a movie, work out at the gym, buy the latest computer or iPhone or widescreen TV or go go on an exotic vacation uh, wanting to, to please and protect your children, dating a guy or a gal, or taking some time for yourself, then none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. The issue is whether or not these things come before God in your life. These things, we know, have a tendency to distract us from God or to deaden us toward God. Too often, these things compete with God for our time, for our energy, for our attention, and God get, ends up getting, getting the leftovers. He ends up taking second place to these things. And if we're not careful, we can also allow these things to even become an alternative to God. What I mean by that is that we allow them to become another God. 
that rules and controls us that we rely on to make us happy and satisfied. Anything that distracts us or diverts us from God or deadens us towards God qualifies as another God. So the question is, is is anything, anything that takes time and attention away from God or anything that we allow to become a higher priority than God in our lives or anything that impairs our ability to serve God wholeheartedly or anything from which we're seeking fulfillment and happiness apart from him is another God. So we need to make sure that our interest and involvement in any one or anything does not draw us away from our relationship with God. Our relationship with God must dominate every part of our lives. Our actions, our words, our thoughts, our emotions, our decisions, our desires, our dreams, our goals, our time, our our, our finances. And many times what happens is we get so consumed with these temporal things that our minds and our schedules are unavailable to, to, to think about and to do the things that really matter in life. The college students are going to start going through John Piper's series, Don't Waste Your Life. And his point is, you know, he read a story about some couple that had retired and uh, moved down to the Florida Keys and spent the rest of their lives on this planet collecting seashells. And he's like, is, seriously, you're going you're gonna to get up to heaven and say, oh, hi, Jesus, here's my seashell collection. Don't waste your life is the point. Um, again, sometimes we spend so much time thinking and fretting and worrying about our possessions or our plans or our problems or our jobs or our kids or our spouse or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our hobby or our appearance or our bank account that we have no time left to think and reflect and meditate on the living God. We've got no leftover time after doing all that stuff. And so whatever, whatever dominates our thoughts, our schedules, is another God that steals the place in our lives that should be reserved for God alone. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is, okay, how how can we determine the things that may have become or have the potential to become other gods in our lives? Don't you think that's a good question? How can you determine things that may have become or have the potential to become other gods in your life? Let me give you three ways to determine that. Number one, evaluate your thought life. Evaluate your thought life. What do you think about? What, do you, what, do, what, is, your, what is your mind filled with? What do you think about the most? Evaluate your thought life. Number two, Evaluate your checkbook. Evaluate your checkbook. How do you spend your money? What do you spend most of your money on? Good indication of maybe something that has become another God or has the potential to become another God. Number three, evaluate your free time. Evaluate your free time. We all have some free time in our lives in any given day, any given week. So what are you doing with your free time? What do you do? I think these are areas that expose where our true affections lie, what we're, what, what we're, uh, what we're thinking about, how we're spending our money, and, and what we're doing with our free time. Just like a, a compass that, that always points north, 
our thinking, our spending, and our scheduling, I guess you could call it that way. What, what, how do you schedule your life? Why do you schedule your time? What are you investing your time in? These things always point to the object of, our, of greatest affection in our lives. I mean, if you find yourself daydreaming about someone or something that brings you pleasure, maybe you're researching and buying something that will make you happy, uh, you're spending time with someone or doing something or going somewhere that will satisfy you, and and that just becomes an all-consuming thing, that's become another God. I think there's another way to, to verify whether or not someone or something has become another God. In other words, you become too attached to to someone or something. And that's, first of all, the love test. The love test. It really is a test of your devotion. What do you desire most is the question. What do you desire most? Jesus said it this way, Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. A.W. Pink said it this way. He said, God is the only adequate object of our love and the only one able to satisfy our soul. It requires that we have a love for him stronger than all other affections. That's Pink's exposition of the, the first commandment, that it requires that we have a love for him stronger than all other affections. So that's the love test. What, what do you desire most? Secondly is the trust test. The trust test. This, this is a test of your dependence. What do you depend on most? Or who do you depend on most? Jeremiah 9, verse 23, says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. In other words, there was the, the dependence, not on your might, not on your wisdom, not on your riches, but you're dependent on the Lord. Martin Luther said this, whatever your soul clings to and relies upon, that is your God. And so one of the best questions I think we can ask ourselves to see if we are loving or trusting someone or something too much is this. Would I be willing to give them up or give it up if the Lord were to ask me? Would I be willing to give up this person? Would I be, give, be willing to give up this whatever, this thing, if the Lord asked me to? And I think the greatest example in the Old Testament of the love and trust test is who? Abraham and Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. You're familiar with the story. Uh, God told Abraham to take his son up to the mountain and sacrifice him. Offer him to the Lord as a, as a living sacrifice and, and kill this son of promise. This is the son that he promised to give him uh, that, that, that all the hope of the future nation, uh, God's people, and, and here, here, here he's testing him. He says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There was a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And you know the story. They get up, they go, and they're walking along, and Isaac say, hey, dad, you know, we got the wood, we got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And he says, what? God will provide. 
And so they get up to the mountain and uh, they get everything set up. And then Abraham takes Isaac and he binds him and lays him on the altar. And I'm sure Isaac was going, hey, dad, I'm not sure I understand what you're doing right now. This is really weird. Um, And so what does he do? Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife and he was ready to plunge that knife into his son and kill him in obedience to God. In, in really an ultimate act of faith. And what did God say? Abraham, stop. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. In other words, God basically said, hey, Abraham, just checking. Just checking making sure I'm still the most important thing in your life. I know how much you love this son. I know how much hope you have for this son, all these dreams you have for your son. Listen, I just, I just want to make sure that I'm still more important to you than your son. And I think he passed both the love test, that he loved God more than he loved Isaac, and he passed the trust test, that I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to give this up. If you want me to give it up, I'm trusting you that you're going to be honored and glorified and you're going to grant me the grace to deal with this. Life without my son. If that's indeed what was his choice. Listen, let's face it. All of us are tempted to love and trust all sorts of things other than God. And the best way to guard our hearts from other gods is to fall passionately in love with God and to learn to totally trust him and him alone to truly satisfy us. Because that's really why we go away from the Lord, isn't it? We're looking for someone else or something else to satisfy us. God's not enough for us. One commentator said this. He said, God is the fountain of happiness and no intelligent being can be happy but through him. Whoever seeks for supreme happiness in the creature instead of the creator is guilty of a violation of this command. In other words, if you're seeking happiness in anyone or anything besides God, you are violating the first commandment. You're breaking the first commandment. You're disobeying the first commandment. Whatever it be that sets up a rival interest in our souls, absorbing that love and service which belongs to the true God, that is another God before him. So the question is, what is absorbing your love, your service, which, which, which belongs to the one true God? And then let's not miss the positive point of this command. You shall have no other gods besides, there's one more word there, we haven't exposited, we haven't explained, what is it? Me. No other gods besides me. What God promises us when we forsake other gods is what? Himself. He promises us himself. You, you, you get me. You, you won't need any other gods besides me. I'm all you need. I'll be, I'll be more than enough for you. I will satisfy every thirst you have, every desire you have. I will provide all of your needs. I'll solve all your problems. And in ancient times, I think this is interesting, in ancient times there were, in this polytheistic uh, uh, mindset, 
In religion, there was different gods responsible for different things. There was the, the god of war, there was the god of fertility and childbirth and god of agriculture and crops and locusts and storms and the god of grain, the god of health, the god of travel, the god of justice. Uh, and, and so the gods of the nations were specialized, if you will. They were, there was these, they were basically one-trick ponies. It's like, okay, you're the God that deals with crops, and that's all you do, and you're the God that deals with you know, the, the, the locusts, and you're the God that deals with the travel. Whenever I travel, I've got to talk to you because this guy over here doesn't have, have a clue about any of that stuff. Right? So they were not only specialized, but they were also localized. Well, this is the God you know, uh, uh, that lives in this hill, and this is the God that lives in this valley, in this region, in this nation. They were localized, and, and, and the main God was only consulted on major matters, and then only by the pagan religious leaders, and then there was all these other lesser gods that, that helped them deal with the mundane matters of everyday life. And as one commentator says here, God demanded that the Israelites look to him for everything, to turn to him in every situation. But in return for the Israelites' exclusive worship, God promised to supply everything they needed. So what's the bottom line? I think what God wanted to communicate to us in the first commandment is that he is so great and awesome that we don't need anyone or anything else but him. And if we know the one true God, there's no reason for us to have any other gods because in him we have everything we need. He is a one-stop shop. You don't have to run around to this region to talk to this God about this issue. You, you, just, you just go to God, the one true God. And he knows how to do everything. And he's everywhere. And most importantly, in him we have what we need most, and that is a Savior who forgives us for our sin, frees us from our sin. That's what he says in Isaiah 45, verse 21. There is no other gods besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. In other words, there's no other way to be saved. But through the one true God of the Bible, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth. In righteousness I will not turn back, that to me... Every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And so when we turn away from our sin, we turn to God, we commit our lives to love and obey his Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord, we trust him as our Savior, we'll be saved. When Kel and I got married, we both decided to write out our own vows. Thought that'd be fun. Thought that'd be extra meaningful for us to take the time to think through exactly what we wanted to vow, what we wanted to promise uh, to one another. And so I've got mine still in a little frame on my dresser right by my bed, right by our bed. And so I look at them from time to time. And I remember as I was writing those some 25 years ago now that I wanted to promise to love Kelly 
in a myriad of different ways. And so I stated how I wanted to love her extravagantly and how I wanted to love her unconditionally and how I wanted to love her sacrificially and how I wanted to love her enduringly. But I think the one part of my vows that was probably the hardest for me to write or even to say, because I knew it was going to be the hardest for me to do, was this. I promise to love you exclusively and to be faithful to you, forsaking all others, I commit myself to you and you alone. That's the kind of commitment that God wants us to make to him, to love him exclusively, to be faithful to him and to forsake all others to follow him. That doesn't mean you won't struggle at times to remain faithful to your commitment to God. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they do a great job, as you know, distracting you, drawing you away from your relationship with the Lord. There's all sorts of temptations that cause our mind and our eyes and our feet to wander uh, from him. There's countless opportunities to, to split our time and energy and resources and attention with God and someone or something else. There's a myriad of things that compete with him for first place in our lives, but we must remain true to the promise that we made when we came to Christ to love him and obey him, not till death do us part, but till death brings us together into his glorious, all-satisfying presence for all eternity. You shall have no other gods beside me. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the commandments and how they reveal to us your character. Uh, No quicker way to get to know your heart than to read and study the Ten Commandments. And we've learned tonight, Lord, that more than anything else, uh, you want us to love you exclusively. You don't want to share our commitment with anyone or anything else. And Lord, we just confess to you that we, we're, we're, we're idolaters in our heart. And, and we come up with so many other things to worship besides you. And Lord, we just confess that and ask you to forgive us and ask you to, to just help us, to grant us the grace that we need, Lord, to keep you first and to put you first in our lives. Lord, and so all as we feel the tug of so many other things, Lord, in this world and in our flesh, Lord, around us, in us, Lord, that you would continue to draw uh, from us ultimate affection and, uh, Lord, exclusive devotion and dependence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.